in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable, where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Nathan Lutz, and joining me today are two people that you may not have met before. We're excited to have Kevin Weigand on the show. Kevin, welcome, and please tell us about yourself. Hey, thanks for having me. Super excited to be here, talk about Fargo. I live in New York City, where it's currently raining and thinking about snowing, much like the setting in Fargo. I work in early stage consumer products at an investment firm. And yeah, I guess in my free time, I love to watch movies. I review uh, all the movies that I watch on Letterboxd and write up you know, reviews and rate them with star ratings and even make lists of my favorite movies. And um, I also have a guilty pleasure for watching really bad movies. I will go out of my way to watch a movie that is reviewed really poorly just to see <laughs> why it's bad at uh, the same frequency that I'll watch something that's reviewed really well to see why it's good. So, uh, yeah, consider me a uh, movie junkie on, on all fronts. Awesome. Is there a location that you would send our listeners to to check out some of those? Yeah, uh, it's letterbox.com. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, but uh, it, it's a it's kind of like a social sort of movie review website uh, that I think a lot of like people are hopping on. Movies? Things. Yeah, it is honestly. Um, it's it's kind of just like if if IMDb had like some sort of more social feature to it. Oh, cool. um, yeah, it's 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 cool, and it's just like you know if you're if you're like me and like just track tracking things and kind of checking boxes, it's it's really satisfying to have. Yeah, I think it's just KYGand is my account. So, you know, Google me. There's a there's a small there's a small icon of Arnold Schwarzenegger from Predator as my as my icon. So that's how you find me. And joining me also for the first time finally, I'm very excited to introduce my girlfriend, JD. Hi. Thank you for having me on here, Nathan. <laughs> it's um, great to have you aboard. Uh yeah, I'm JD Donnelly. I'm an artist and writer by trade. My specialty is normally creatures, extinct, mythical, and living. So Fargo, you know, there's an interesting snowy habitat going on. And <laughs> but yeah, normally I'm I'm based out of uh Johnstown, which is about two hours as the crow flies from your home base, Nathan. Outside of Pittsburgh, which is where. I live in an area where there's more deer than people. So definitely more like Fargo than over here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> We're representing all the different characters here. Absolutely. All right. Well, as we start here, just for a little bit of warm up, just have some quick questions. So, Kevin, what was the last movie that you attended in a movie theater? The last movie I attended in a movie theater. I think it was Dune. Yes. <laughs> dunk. Yes. <laughs> yes, Dunk, as, uh, as it is colloquially named. Thank you, poster designers. <laughs> I think that that was the last mo- That's last theater movie that... We saw Ghostbusters. Oh, of course, we saw Ghostbusters. Yeah, so that's the answer to my question, was when we saw Ghostbusters at Thanksgiving, or Ghostbusters Afterlife, to be specific. Yes. 
So what were your thoughts on Dune, Kevin? Uh, I really liked it. And I'm definitely, definitely glad I saw it in theaters versus watching it on, uh, on HBO at home. It was just a really well done movie, uh, really long, but I will, I enjoyed it and I'm looking forward to the second part. Yeah. Are you a book reader? I do read books, but I have not read Dune. I'm always curious how it is how it is received by those who have not read the books so see i i not sorry to interrupt i will say i watched the uh the david lynch version from the 80s Ooh. uh which tells the whole the full story and you know i i mentioned earlier i like bad movies and i think this is widely reviewed as a, <laughs> as a, as a disaster and it, it's certainly wacky and and very goofy uh but you know it's just like a you know kind of like a car crash that you can't really follow uh that you have to watch <laughs> a car crash that you just can't take your eyes off of huh i think it is time that we get into the movie proper that we're doing ourselves kevin what are we doing today fargo excellent fargo was <laughs> released in 1996 to the tune of $24 million. It placed 67th in the box office that year, and ahead of it was The Craft, and behind it was Sling Blade. So um, I got to say, not two movies that I've ever heard of before and will probably uh, ever think, hear of again. I think really? I've heard of The Craft. I think my cousin liked it. Okay. I have a feeling it has to do with witches or something. Sling Blade is excellent. You you guys should watch Sling Blade. One of the best oh, really? movies of all time. Huh. No, it, it's well, truly an awesome movie. It's really well Maybe done. I shall put it on the, on the list. <laughs> uh, the the uh, number one movie that year was Independence Day, and Fargo reaped an IMDb rating of 8.1. The critics' tomatometer is at 94%, with the audience score at 93%. So this is a well-loved classic, okay. uh, despite its position in the box office that year. It is the winner of five Academy Awards for really? including... Best Actress for Frances McDormand, Best Original Screenplay by Joel and Ethan Cohen. It had five nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress, Cinematography, and Film Editing. So five for five. Wow. Uh, quite the successful movie there. And had four Golden Globes nominations with, for Best Motion Picture Musical Comedy, Best Director, Best Actress, and Screenplay. So very successful there. So expectations and background here. Kevin, is this a movie that is new to you or do you have a deep history with this? Deep history with it for sure. Probably saw it the first time when I was around 12, I want to say. I don't have an exact age there. Wow. 12? Yeah, and I can I can get into that if you want, but uh, most recently watched it yesterday. So very fresh. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I'm not one to judge. My favorite movie in preschool was Jaws. So at the ripe old age of five, I was rooting for the shark. So, but I mean, this seemed a little intense to show a 12 year old. You know, uh, I don't think it was fine. shown to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I, I always think the first rated R movie that you see, and I don't know if this was yours, but I, I feel like there's something intrinsically very determining of sort of your personality in the future, what that first bit of off the beaten path, path movie watching is. Cause for me, <laughs> it was the matrix and there's a whole lot of sci-fi and interest with simulation theory and all that sort of thing in my background. And I feel like that's connected to all of that. So I don't know. Did Fargo have a deep effect on you? 
Well, uh, like you, I, I want to say the first radar movie I saw was probably some sort of action movie or sci-fi movie. My head's mm-hmm. going to like the Terminator um, yeah. as, as something more my speed. Fargo definitely wasn't the first radar movie I saw. I don't think I sat down and watched it beginning to end, but I definitely wasn't ready for how like black comedy disturbing <laughs> Fargo is. I remember being rattled by a very specific scene that I saw. I bet you guys can guess. Um, <laughs> and 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 I was like, wow, I, this movie kind of rubbed me the wrong way, honestly, and like stuck in my head for a little bit. And I didn't watch it again until uh, much later, maybe high school or college. And I feel like ever since then, each time I've seen it, I've appreciated it more and more. And maybe that's just me getting older and having, you know, more more taste and familiarity with different types of writing and movie uh, movies. But yeah, definitely has grown on me from uh, from the first time I saw it. A great lifetime growing with a movie, huh? J.D.? Uh, I watching it with you in preparation for this podcast was the first time I've ever seen the film version of Fargo. However, I am previously familiar with the TV spinoff series of Fargo. And it was really interesting to compare and contrast in my head because I I watched the first three seasons in full and halfway through the fourth season. I still need to finish the fourth season. But it was interesting to see how more or less the first season mirrored the original movie. But there was also one thing in the TV show that I'll get into later that the movie explained. It's like, oh, that's where that came from in the TV show. And <laughs> like a plot point. And it was like, where did this come from? Is this just random? Like, nope, it's a throwback to the original movie. So it was kind of cool to reverse engineer that plot point, so to speak. Did you know it was a, a movie when you started I watching knew, the show? I knew it was a movie, but I had heard good things about the TV show. And I remember we, I watched it with my mom when one of our evening TV times. And I was like, we were looking for something to watch. It's like, oh, Fargo, I've heard good things about this. So we started watching it. I was like, oh, I'm really getting into this. And there's a specific aspect of the TV show I really like that isn't present in the movie. Yes. Uh, the TV show, the first two seasons are, are fantastic, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And as the third leg of this tripod, I have to be the, uh, as I often am on Retro Movie Roundtable, the guy who hasn't seen it before, because <laughs> this movie falls into the blind spot of decade during which I have not seen many movies from that time. So. Well, you would have been, what, 1996, you would have been like three? Yeah, <laughs> I would have been quite young, and this was be this would be the kind of movie that my parents would not take to. So, uh, yeah, have not seen before, and this was a really cool movie to me. This is this is one of those movies that's like, it's, an, it's a piece of art that's describing how a community would react to a crazy situation. Yeah. And it doesn't hold your hand and yell at you that, that's kind of what it's describing, but it gives you all these wonderful slices of how this community is and all that all that stuff. I love that kind of thing. Yeah, between the writing and the characters and especially the cinematography, it definitely strikes me as more like an art art house movie with a budget. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, for those of you who, like me, have not watched this before, prepare yourselves and maybe go watch the movie because after this bit of a break for advertising, we are going to spoil all of Fargo for you. So go watch the movie or come right back in just a minute. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. 
Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. So we are back, as has just been stated. Spoilers ahead. So I am just going to give a quick recap of the plot and we will get into discussing this wonderful movie. Jerry Lundegaard, award-winning Oldsmobile dealership manager in a small town outside Minneapolis, has the money itch. He has married the daughter of a wealthy businessman, but his father-in-law won't share the wealth. He has tried get-rich-quick scam partnerships with the guy, but gets rejected every time. Now he has a new idea. Hire kidnappers from Fargo, North Dakota to hold his wife for ransom and get his father-in-law to make the big payout. But when he ignores a few obvious warning signs with the kidnappers, things go sideways and several innocent bystanders, including a state trooper, end up dead. This sets Chief Marge Gunderson of the local police onto this wild case. Why would anyone do such a thing? She figures the perpetrators must not be from around here. People around here are all pretty trustworthy. Right. But while Jerry Lundegaard haplessly negotiates with both his father-in-law and the kidnappers, Chief Gunderson has a journey of self-discovery and stops being so trusting. So when Jerry lies to her, she jumps on the scent and follows it all the way to a cabin where one of the kidnappers has killed Lundegaard's wife and shoved his inept partner into a wood chipper. She takes him in and gives him a, a speech about, why would you do all of this sort of thing for money? I just don't understand. And Lundegaard ended up arrested too. <laughs> and Lundegaard also got arrested in a very... Oh. <laughs> uh- Everyone who was guilty ended up either wood chipped or in the slammer. <laughs> yep, yep, and the and the and the poor father-in-law ended up dead. Yeah, yeah. There's a whole uh, breadcrumb of bodies <laughs> throughout this yeah. case. Yeah. This is definitely a movie with a blood trail. So, so I think one of the most important themes of this movie, at least that I took out of it, is this idea that they're in this small town and everybody kind of knows each other and had like in the police office, everyone's pretty casual about things. Everybody's having fun. They're having art competitions. They're having all these situations where they're not used to these extremely serious things that are happening. And it's really fun how many scenes in this movie play into that. So let's talk a little bit about the choices on what gets shown of what gives this movies such it's wonderful small town character sort of thing so from a setting standpoint kevin what do you what do you see that really sets the stage for you um well you can start with the snow it's very white very vast and then you see character what you know to answer your question about what what gives it the small town feel every character you see is just like living their life uh in their their natural way it's almost it's very clear they existed before the cameras started rolling and they will exist after the cameras stop rolling you see you see marge in bed you see the just the nitty-gritty of, of everyday life here you know prowler needs to jump her, her engines you know frozen or whatever in her her mm-hmm. car you see the meeting arby's you see <laughs> um you see you see just all these little sort of moments people watching hockey people watching like you know daily tv shows it's just very clear that you know these 
these are local people doing local things uh and there's no sort of you know cinematic airs put on these characters there's nothing that they're doing that's like extraordinary or accentuate accentuated in a way that you know wouldn't actually happen yeah it's it's a lot of fun jd um yeah i would say like bouncing off of that when they showed the inside of like jerry lundegaard's house it was like that's a very 90s house like the whole polished wood kind of like beige carpeting like it was like this feels like a 90s movie <laughs> or like it's set in what would have been contemporary at the time of its release yeah. um and yeah like kind of like again like the whole the they say you can boil down any story into two kind of formats either someone goes on a journey or strangers arrive into town and this is definitely the latter because steve buscemi and uh the pierre stormare like they're 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 out of towners they are not part of this community and they're the ones that bring all the problems to the community through their actions accidental and intentional yeah and um yeah it was like part of it's like some of it's this conversations like there's that one scene where it's not even characters we've seen before the guy shoveling his driveway and yeah. then like the, the other police officer shows up and they're just <laughs> Elect- like, electric hey, scene i said that's an electric scene yes. yes yeah it's like it's just completely random it doesn't really have any bearing on any other like it doesn't connect to the scene before it or after it or referenced again at all but like that's definitely small town chatter it's going just on. so great and they, they talk about marge's wife or not wife sorry his husband her husband going to like ice fishing it's like oh i'm getting i'm gonna get in some night crawlers so you can go ice fishing and i do laugh that uh that she's married to twisty the clown from <laughs> american horror story oh yeah and and they also have there are there are scenes like that all over the place that it's like this doesn't seem to relate to the plot but it's giving me this vibe about the people involved that they're just people and that this thing that's happened is just so weird to them like the scene where marge the chief of police meets with an old high school friend for dinner and it's an awkward conversation and it's not really clear immediately like why are we doing this what what does this really mean to her but it's showing just like how how down to earth these people tend to be and and how awkward it is to run into high school people when you're an adult <laughs> yeah yeah especially when those I, high I, school people are in situations that uh <laughs> making awkward situations for you that you really didn't want i read online that that scene with mike yanagita which is hilarious by the way um i i very much enjoy it uh but i i read online people like think that's one of the most pointless scenes in like cinema history uh, because I, I'd argue that the rest of the movie is very tight. Actually, everything that happens contributes to the plot in one way or another. Um, there, there's not a lot of fluff at all. Uh, but that's the one scene that actually doesn't really go anywhere with the plot. But I think you're right. It just shows that these ty- these are the types of people. You're a chief of police investigating a homicide, but you're willing to go. You know, you're you're courteous enough to meet some random high school friend for a drink. Like that's the kind of people these people are. They're they're, they're just very warm and sort of open to to the connecting and it, it kind of contrasts against you know everything that happens in in the movie i wonder if um part of that might have been to give marge more plot and screen time because that's another difference i remember too between the original movie and the first season of the tv show is there is a female police officer she isn't police chief though in the tv show and unfortunately her name is escaping me but she goes through a character arc where like she's a very competent police officer like in the movie marge is like the police chief she immediately demands respect she's immediately competent no one questions her whereas in the tv show the female police officer's like she's like hey i think there's like interconnecting crime organization going on here where the other police officers like nah it's just randomness it's not all connected Mm -hmm. so she uh, her character arc is that she 
basically proves herself by point like you know pulling a you know Nancy Drew and like connecting all the dots to say hey it's a bigger picture going on here and she ends up earning her respect that yeah. this character out like Marge in the movie out the gate has yeah. so I don't know for me I think that scene is almost an inflection point for her character or not specifically that scene but the phone calls that she has about it afterwards where she finds out that her old friend has lied to her because Early on, she has an interview with Jerry Lindegard at the auto dealership, and she, he he lies really badly to her, but she believes it because he's, he's just in town. Why would somebody in town be involved with this? Of course, the car's on the lot. And then she has this meeting with this guy. She kind of is just super nice, trusting has this conversation with him and she, you know, can't imagine that she that he would be making anything up. But later on, she gets a call that she finds out, no, this guy totally lied about his really? high school friend dying a horrible death. And yeah, he lied about being married, I think. He lied about being married to and a cancer as well. Friend that died of cancer and then like she gets her friend like, oh no, they weren't married. Like he had she had a restraining yeah. order against him. Like, yeah, yeah. And she, and she did not have cancer. <laughs> yeah. 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 And fairly soon after that, then comes up the scene with the second interview with Jerry Lindegard at the auto dealership. And all of a sudden, Marge is just, I am not trusting what you said. I am actually sort of reading all the stuff on your wall. I think I think that these people in my town, I don't trust them anymore. She and that's cut how the she, bull crap. Yeah. And that's how she kind of solved the case. So I don't know. That, I think that that's a pretty that's interesting impactful scene at least for my reading of the movie so you think that that scene with mike ganagita just basically raises her bar for like locally these people actually can lie and do you know don't trust anything you actually hear from people you don't know that well um yeah versus yeah. like that was the the other the counter to that is like if you look at all the clues and you know lead she has that dealership it all comes back to that dealership and to kind of walk like you know it's probably still bouncing around her brain that there's something there and maybe that leads her back there but i, I totally i like that take that you have there yeah yeah that definitely good take on that. i didn't quite catch that so that's that's kind of how i read this movie is like a uh someone from there is there there is some effect of people from out of town and that's immediately where both the police officers minds go when they're investigating the state troopers car death and uh they say oh well they're obviously not from around here and that's true but their assumption that nobody from around here could be involved mm. doesn't quite pan out so it's uh that that's kind of how i read this movie um in terms of any of the direction by um the director joel cohen uh kevin what sticks out to you um in in terms of the direction, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest. I don't fully know what to attribute in a movie to direction. <laughs> like, maybe that's a bad answer, but I, I have a hard time. Like, I, in my opinion, a director kind of makes all the decisions. Um, I think the use of the music is interesting. There's actually very little usage of, of the score throughout the movie. And it usually comes in at really at the really at a nice time where something really kind of big is happening. And yeah. it really plays to the mood. And I really like how they use that um very sparingly but effectively i did catch they were playing the main melody as a diegetic sound in the jazz piano when 
when Marge goes to meet up with that um, high school guy. During that scene. It's all important. It's the all important scene. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you completely, Kevin. Um, a lot of times in movies, I am like, oh yeah, you should have more music. You should have music should have more character. And this movie is a great in-between place where there's not a whole lot of music, but when it comes in, it's really scene setting. So like as the movie first opens and... Do you think having a lack of soundtrack is what lends itself to being like oh this is more real because we don't walk around with a soundtrack going on so like sometimes i feel like you think like documentaries like like you know or like interviews there's very rarely if ever music so it almost lends a air of of course this is real it's not yeah. we're not overlaying music here this isn't fabricated it, it even claims at the beginning of the movie this is based on real events and all that jazz so it lends itself to its like docu pseudo documentary style yeah exactly it's that documentary feel and then you add in the accents like I don't know how many movies had like that sort of over the top accent in the Midwest before. I think that really sticks out to the audience. Like it's consistent throughout the whole movie. And then as we talked about earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, these characters just, you know, doing really sort of local mundane and the weeds things, all of that just makes it honestly feel like it's happening. And I do think we should talk about the decision to falsely claim this was a true story. Uh, that's something that gets a lot of attention in the media. Yeah, as it's playing this sort of homey harp theme over top of that at the beginning. Don't worry, this is a calm movie. TV show, at the beginning of every episode, they had that text. And, <laughs> and the main theme, that nice. that soft melody playing. Was there a point in the movie, or am I making it up, where they played that same melody in like a baby nursery rhyme? Because they, they show like that Marge is pregnant. And that's why she was throwing up. It wasn't she was throwing up in the body gore. It was she had morning sickness. But I, I have a feeling like I heard it again, like as like, a you know, like a music box or a baby toy melody at some point. But yeah. uh, I don't know. Like, I guess maybe because I knew going in that it wasn't a real film like that. It was like, oh, yeah, this is just like, you know, faux documentary, like how Fourth Kind was a faux documentary. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, I guess like, I, I can't vouch like because I, I didn't. Like, it didn't affect me because I knew going in it was fake. So, but yeah. when this was released, did people think it was based on a real story? Yes. I, really? I looked into this. Yeah, there, there was apparently a group of, a bunch of people showed up in Brainerd, Minnesota with shovels looking for a suitcase uh, filled oh with money. Oh, uh. <laughs> And and one woman apparently this is this is debated. I, I haven't done a ton of research on this, but one apparently one woman actually froze to death, um, ooh, ooh. Pot potentially looking for this suitcase of money. They think I'm not really. I don't want to slander what happened there. I'm not sure of all the details, but uh, Wait, but yeah, I mean this was. How would they if it was quote unquote based on a true story? I'm making air quotes here. Um, the only characters that knew that the suitcase of money was there would have been C. Buscemi himself, who ended up wood chipped. So <laughs> that would be artistic license in the film if it did if it was truly based on a real story that would have been artistic license hmm, but maybe jerry lundegaard who also would have known that there was a suitcase with a million dollars in it oh yeah he didn't die he got arrested at the he end got arrested. so the, he wouldn't have known that it was buried per se but you know that there was a million dollars missing somewhere so someone might have watched the movie and said so the director is guessing that the suitcase was buried yeah. as opposed to hidden in a house hidden anywhere yeah. else that sort of thing and i will say the suitcase was the like i said in the tv series the one thing that like oh that makes sense now because in the first season of the tv show the you find out that billy bob thornton's hitman character he's going after this supermarket mogul and you find out he made his money 
Because he found the suitcase in the snow, and that was his seed money, and he has the ice scraper framed on his fancy office wall <laughs> as, you know, like, this is how, you know, my first dollar, yeah. this is how I got my start. So, like, again, without having seen the original movie first, before seeing the TV series, I was like, oh, that's kind of random. And I was like, but then after seeing the TV, the, the original movie, I was like, oh, that's what that's a reference to, and that's where that came from. So, Kevin, what for you would break the illusion? Would break the illusion of it of what of, of, of it, it being, being re- of of it being possibly a true story. Is there anything? Is there anything in yeah. this movie that? Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, like you guys said, there's no way that, that anybody would know that there's, uh, you know, a briefcase buried on the highway filled with, you know, a million dollars. That's that's ridiculous. I think people just see true story and are looking for something to do and uh, <laughs> and go out there. But it's funny that Coen Brothers have gone back and forth on like what actually inspired this because there's all these rumors of similar crimes in the area that are kind of that happened when they were growing up in the because they're from that area of minnesota um wow. originally and that's why they based it there um but yeah so they were telling a story that was close to home for them and there's a lot of like crimes from the 60s 70s that are kind of, like there's a wood chipping crime there's a, a wife that got kidnapped um but they won't specifically nail down that it was influenced by a specific thing and they've kind of wavered on how it was written uh, a bunch of times through the years. And I think the result is it was just I, I think the end, the, that, the bottom line is like they wrote this from scratch. I don't th- maybe there were some crimes that but they're not going to say it was, you know, actually influenced by a specific thing. Um, so, yeah, that's that's interesting. And also on that scene where Buscemi buries the, the briefcase with the ice scraper, when I think of Fargo, that's actually the scene I think of uh, where, <laughs> where he's going out there with a bloody chin. <laughs> just kind of like scrappily just getting this thing underground and then just looking in both directions where there's just nothingness for and seemingly endless miles. Uh, I, I, that's what I think of when I think of Fargo. I do laugh that Steve Buscemi as a person, he's a very upstanding guy and he keeps getting typecast <laughs> as like in crime movies and crime dramas. He's and just got that face. <laughs> he's funny looking. <laughs> yeah. Funny, I, funny looking how? Just funny looking. <laughs> This is a just in a general triggers, sort of way. This is a movie that triggers my memory on a particular Sherlock Holmes story where he gets a case out in the country and he says something to the effect of, uh, you know, people have this idea of that the city is where all the crime is, that the city is where all the crooks are concentrated, but nobody knows the half of the amount of crimes that happen in the countryside where everybody's isolated and nobody can hear you scream yeah. from far away. And there's more pigs to hide bodies. And there's more pigs <laughs> to hide bodies. So, uh, yeah, I just love I love how much this movie plays with that. You're, you're driving around from sort of middle of nowhere gas station to middle of nowhere restaurant to Paul Bunyan yeah, statue. And that's definitely Midwest culture, oh, the yeah. whole lumberjack folklore uh-huh. bathed in the blue ox. Yep. And and it's all very homey and, and trusting. But honestly, I'm getting there's some Twin Peaks vibes to this, which came out a couple of years before. I wonder, oh, yeah. if, okay. you know, that sort of started the trend, in my opinion, of like small town crimes. Mm-hmm. There's more that meets the eye. And this is kind of the, you know, the Midwest sort of northern version of that. Um, but, yeah, I wonder if that had any influence. Well, you can argue, too, like there, that's like a trend because you have Wicker Man, which is like the original British version. It's like, you know, just small towns or now more a more modern movie, Midsommar. 
like oh, they do weird Wicker Man stuff. And Midsummer is great. <laughs> I say they do weird things out in the country. So, <laughs> hey Nathan, when do you want to come back out to my house in the middle of the woods where there's no neighbors? <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So uh, this movie is directed by Joel Cohen, who has a whole long list of uh, of movies. I'll just read some of the highlights off of here. Raising Arizona, Fargo is his 1996. The Big Lebowski, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, which is a uh, previous episode that has been covered by Retro Movie Roundtable. Um, no Country for Old Men, A Serious Man, Hail Caesar. So just a very, very broad directing career of things. And As I didn't know they did a remake of True Grit. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, 2010. Yeah. Could be reviewed by this show. Um yeah. For me, nothing jumps out as like, hey, this is total fantasy. This is um, really the only the only time I wondered, because, again, I hadn't been clear going in about whether or not there were any supernatural aspects to this movie. I was unclear whether Shep Proudfoot from the car dealership was overly strong or not, because, man, he's picking people up and throwing them across the room when he's angry at them. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is this where the supernatural element comes in? But other than that, everything is shot in a way that it's like, this is so, so down to earth and believable. Yeah. And the interest comes from the sort of collision of tropey crime stuff with salt of the earth people who live in country in uh, country America. So that's sort of my takeaway from the direction. It's it's really enjoyable, but it does get out of the way for the for the good stuff. Kevin, what are your thoughts on how the story proceeds? Yeah, I like the way the screenplay jumps right in. They, they explain the rules right away when uh, Jerry meets the two kidnappers in Fargo. And I, I just like movies like that where there's a somewhat of a complex plot, but it gets ironed out right away. You understand the rules, the stakes, what everybody's motives are. And it's sort of a best laid plans of mice and men from there where, you know, it seems like things are supposed to be executed one way and they go another way. And you see it all through the lens of these sort of quirky characters that are really authentic, like you said, to the town they live in. Yeah, it seems like any t- movie, regardless if it's a heist movie, a crying movie, a sci-fi movie, if they lay out the plan in detail, you know it's not going to go as it is planned. Like, that's the whole setup. Yeah, it's amazing yeah, in, in the theory to which Jerry Lundegaard is this kind of small-town guy who has big aspirations for, for this money for whatever reason that he needs it, and just no concept of background checking the people that he's hiring and just ignores all the warning signs and you just know stuff is going to go so wrong and it is quite funny so kevin there's a lot in this movie that it's a character moment but it's really telling you a lot about how the plot is going to move forward what are sort of moments where you see oh my gosh this this character is behaving in a way that is just throwing up all the red flags yeah, I can, I can, I mean, every character seems to have a moment or two like that at minimum. One that really jumps out to me is Steve Buscemi. Uh, his character's <laughs> name's Carl. Um, just a really interesting sort of character that is obviously nefarious based upon, you know, his work. But like the, the side of him that I think really stands out in this movie is he cares about things like making small talk. Uh, he cares about, you know, 
he cares about uh, the tallest building in the Midwest. He cares about all these like little sort of, you know, I, I, I almost heartfelt things. He seems like a considerate guy kind of at the same time. But the other half of him is this sort of ruthless criminal uh, that can yeah. get very angry. But you see him in the car speaking with his partner, uh, Grimsrud. And ha- I think there's some moments there that really shed light on their relationship. Uh, one guy being a little more considerate and the other guy being basically uh, you know, a machine, pure evil. <laughs> JD? Um, yeah, definitely a lot of character acting, and I think part of it, too, might be the characters are influenced by the local culture, because this would definitely be a movie that the setting and, like, you know, the Midwestern culture is in in itself a character, almost. Like, it would be a very different movie with set in California or Pennsylvania or New York City, and part of it is the Minnesotan charm and, like, the, you know, the, oh, geez, accent, and my apologies (laughs) for any Minnesotans (laughs) listening in. Um, I, I promise I will not abuse the Minnesota. It's so tempting. These accents are just so wonderful. <laughs> well, yeah, no, um, I agree. Like Steve Buscemi, phenomenal actor. I mean, anything I've seen him in has been really good, whether it be voice work or um, actual him portraying. And something that struck me was a lot of Jurassic Park alumni in this movie, because <laughs> uh, William H. Macy, the guy who plays Jerry Wondergaard, Lin- Lin- is um, he's in Jurassic Park three. He's the dad, and then um. The honestly, Peter Stormare's character in my head, I just kept calling him the compy guy because he's the guy that gets eaten by the little compies in Jurassic Park Lost World. And yeah, but yeah, it was again, like I said, I was I was actually did not know coming in that Steve Buscemi was in it, so that was a pleasant surprise. Like, oh yeah, Steve Buscemi, this is gonna be good. Oh yeah. Um, one thing I would actually be curious about here is JD. There are a lot of contrasts which with sort of how the movie and the tv show develop Mm. can you describe how they relate to each other uh okay so i promise i won't try to get too spoily in the tv show because there are significant differences i will say um one big difference in storytelling is that in the tv show they do somewhat of a better job of everything being interconnected Whereas in the movie, some of the awkward humor kind of lends to the absurdity of happenstance. Whereas in the TV show, they do kind of a better job where like character A's actions influence character B, who is adjacent to character C, who who is then connected back to character A. Like it's all one big tumbleweed of intrigue and connections. Honestly, going into the movie kind of blind after having seen the TV show, I was curious if the supernatural element of the TV show would be present in the movie, but it was not. So I was really intrigued, like, oh, they decided to add that to the TV show. And I thought that added an interesting speculative layer to it. Because I will say one thing I really appreciated about, particularly the first season, it's a little bit more overt in seasons two and three and four. But the first season, the supernatural element, it's it's always like one element per season. It varies from season to season. Uh, Like first season, it's a... Hitman that may or may not be human and may or may not be like a demon or a trickster deity. Whereas in season two, it's aliens. And then season three, it's another dude who may be a del. There actually is mention of, of an angel and like a purg- purgatory's bowling alley in season three. Um, <laughs> and season four, I got far enough to see that the supernatural element was a ghost. But um, yeah, in the f- first season, it's of done so subtly you can almost argue that it is all coincidence and there is not a supernatural element. There's only like two parts where it cannot be explained by coincidence. And it has to do with like a spatial thing. Like a character appears and disappears like Mm -hmm. out of no discernible 
like he just appear, you know, teleports, and it's like there's no other way to really just like, like oh he went on a backdoor thing. Like so that's the only like kind of confirmed like okay that can't be explained <laughs> via coincidence. That has to be supernatural. But everything else is done so subtly. It's like okay it could just be he has a very specific skill set yeah. that makes him seem supernatural but but yeah but so i was interested to see that like the original the source inspiration did not have that supernatural slant to it and but overall the first from what i recall from the first season of the tv show and nick you can back me up or confirm me because it's been a little bit since i've seen it it more or less mirrored the initially mirrored the plot of the movie probably the biggest difference was there wasn't a kidnapping scheme it was just a straight up murder of the wife there was a pair of hitmen too they weren't um contracted to participate in the crime that happened they were adjacent and got involved in a sideways slant but it was kind of like they did a riff one thing i appreciated because in the movie steve buscemi was yap 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 talk 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 he would not shut up where and um peter stormare's character was the silent stoic type how they riffed on that in the tv series was the hitmen were a pair of brothers and one of them is deaf. So one is silent by default, and they communicate via ASL mm. for for most. And, like, the one brother can speak, and he does speak sometimes. But most of their communication is through ASL. So it kind of riffs on the silence, but it's not because of a personality trait. Yeah. It's because yeah. of a yeah. actual character um, yeah. design, almost. So going into this fresh for me, I had heard generally that there was some sort of a subtle, fantastical element in the tv show and i assumed that was in the movie so i'm sitting here watching peter stormare the whole time (laughs) the silent but effective kidnapper who (laughs) is sort of weird definitely confuses all the other characters around around him but he gets stuff done and i'm watching him just like oh yeah where's it coming from where's it coming from but you know what sometimes that might be a disappointing experience in a movie but the way that he pulls all that stuff off is just so great as somebody who watched the movie a couple times before the show came out, I was my guard was up. I was super skeptical, right? Like Fargo was this tight, simple, sort of really rich movie that, you know, has yeah. aged really well. Why are we making a TV show about this? It didn't say like I just didn't get it. Like, how are you going to do that? Are you just going to expand the plot of the movie over eight to ten episodes? What's going to happen here? And I was, as you guys have pointed out in your analysis, like they did a great job. And I think by virtue of just having more time to explore this world, that's where you get into some of the supernatural elements. That's where everybody can connect with each other. You can go deeper, have a more complex plot, more characters. So I think they, they really maximized the the extra time they had, because I don't think, you know, this Fargo story is, you know, a hundred minutes long. I don't know how you could do that over a TV show. So they mm-hmm. did, it was a riff. I think that is a good way to put it. And in, in the kind of, midwest insecure guy in way over his head dealing with dangerous people i think that's about as close as it gets in terms of similarities Uh, but there's a lot of newness there and something i will say too is going into the fargo tv show when i pulled it up i thought it was just i heard it was like i knew it was vaguely about a crime drama i knew vaguely of a wood chipper involved in the movie (laughs) like that's what that's the only thing i knew about the original movie was a wood chipper somehow involved but going to the TV show, I just thought it was like a crime drama. And so when I started playing it, because, but because I'm very versed in folklore and mythology and all kinds of stuff, I was able to pick up the supernatural like subtleties very quickly in the first episode, in the first season, because of how they portrayed um, uh, Lauren Bovo is the hitman's name, played by Billy Bob Thornton. And I was like, wait a minute, there's fairiness 
going on here because there's certain rules that demons and fairies and like trickster deities have to fall like fall like you know gotta get invited into places they behave certain ways they have to take explicit um <laughs> yeah stuff i was just gonna say fun fact number one from me is mm-hmm. uh billy bob thornton is the star of sling blade which we mentioned earlier <laughs> oh. well now i have to check it out <laughs> um anyone else kevin that you would call out in the cast uh on characters that stand out i mean francis mcdormand as marge you know jumps off the screen jumps out the screen here uh she obviously won the oscar for this for this role i think it's interesting she shows up i think over 30 minutes into the movie is the first time we see her which in my mind is always a mark of a of a good movie can you introduce a new character that is awesome you know at some point midway through a lot of good movies do that and she certainly makes the most of her time on the screen Oh, one thing that struck me too, I will say a marked difference I noticed comparing the TV show to the uh, original movie was uh, Jerry Lundengard in the he's Jerry Lundengard in the movie in the first season of the TV series. It, it's Lester Nygaard played by Martin Freeman in the um, TV series. I was a little surprised because what happens with William H. Macy as Jerry doesn't really transform as a character much. He starts off kind of like diminutive and kind of sneaky and like he just gets what he sows. He messed around and he found out in the end when he gets, you know, dragged in his undies outside out of the motel and arrested. But in the TV show, it's a much more drastic. Like he, Lester is a very you know diminutive, mousy man, and then his it, what happens is he crosses Billy Bob Thornton, who's not even like involved with him, and it's that chance crossing that sparks a catalyst for his character to change, and he becomes like more competent. And like as this the first season progresses, it's like you know it's almost like an Oedipus story where the rise of a character he becomes you know kind of a bamf and becomes more capable as a person period and so it was interesting to see like i was a little surprised that the original jerry did not go through such a transformation he just kind of started and stopped at the kind of the same point almost like he didn't go through a character transformation there was no kind of arc to his character um in terms of any um wardrobes and costumes and all that sort of thing anything jump out to you guys long johns oh yes <laughs> some comfy looking long johns to deal with that minnesota cold yes <laughs> and just the puffy sweaters and like very you know obviously um attire meant to deal with the cold and the chill of that kind of environment and it's set in winter obviously yeah so. there's something utterly hilarious about peter stromare as gare grimsrud the uh the quiet kidnapper sitting around in this like incredibly comfortable set of overclothes watching a fuzzy cabin. tv while there's a kidnapped victim tied to a chair 10 feet away from him yeah just chilling in his long johns is great anything, one of my favorite that jump out to you kevin yeah one of my favorite little moments in the movie uh is in in a, kind of one of the climax points where stormare hits buscemi with the axe um as he's chasing him outside he like first stops to put on his hat with the axe <laughs> um I, I think that's just like maybe the best wardrobe moment of the movie very small hey you lose most of your heat off your head that's why hats are important in the winter uh, the scene with steve buscemi digging in the snow with no gloves and like a crazy wound to his chin i was just shivering just looking at it you <laughs> <laughs> know when he walked in with that you know yeah. gunshot windows face like you should see the other guy all right so what do you think you guys ready to hand out some superlatives 
I'm ready when you are. Yep. All right, Kevin, for the pick of MVP, which can be director, an actor, or a supporting actor, or really anybody involved with the production who you think really, really pulled all the way, who would you pick? I'm going to give it to the Coen brothers. This is the movie that really starts a run of like their all-time sort of Mount Rushmore movies. Uh, And that's saying a lot for, you know, team of directors that has a ton of great movies. But I I was reading online, actually, their their prior three movies were kind of poorly reviewed or did poorly at the box office. Like they were on a bit of a skid. And Mm. this movie did really well and, you know, obviously had the Oscar buzz. So I think it kind of catapulted back them back up to the top. And it was obviously, you know, a, a movie based on where they were from so it, it meant a lot to them and it was just a very simple less is more kind of movie i think it's their their crown jewel in terms of filmmaking and you know they went on to make some great movies right after this big lebowski no country for old men um so i i'm giving this to the to the coen brothers because it gave them the momentum to sort of you know be those those elite elite directors rather than uh, directors that had you know a, g- a couple good films here or there and a lot of flubs all right and jd I'm going to give my MVP to Steve Buscemi because, no offense, Mr. Buscemi, he basically plays scummy characters very well. And he had brings a sense of humor to it. Like, it was a very, he wasn't just a straight up jerk. He <laughs> had humor to the character, too. And he just plays that kind of character really well. Like, he, he looks weaselly, so he leans into it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And on my end, I'm going to go with Francis McDormand as Marge Gunderson, who just sells this wonderful story of a cop discovering the darkness of the community around her and uh oh man that whole that whole role is great and this is the it's it's great to have a movie where we can have three totally different mvps here because the whole the the whole ensemble is just doing great here um so uh next up is best supporting actor kevin i just want to comment on buscemi who i guess i'll give this to here if you look at all the other main characters, they're all kind of one note, like like William H. Macy just plays a, you know, a weaselly kind of nervous guy the whole time. There's no yeah. character arc, as you call it out. Marge is kind of just a really like wholesome, good character, you know, just very earnest the whole movie. Bush, you know, Grimsrud by Peter Stormare is just like silent. He has like 18 lines of dialogue the whole movie. He doesn't <laughs> say anything. Uh, they're all kind of one note and it works for the movie. But Buscemi does most of the talking and is kind of like, like I said, he's this, he has two sides to him. There's, he's, he's multifaceted. So I think he had sort of the heaviest lift in terms of acting, um, in terms of being versatile. So I, I would give it to, to Steve Buscemi if you can, if you can classify him as that. And if you can't classify him as that, I would like to give it to all of the sort of just random bit parts, the guy with the shovel. Um, all the people that give these little interviews are, are my, are my backup. My best supporting actor is going to go to Shep Proudfoot because his A, he's the catalyst. He's the one that gets um, William H. Macy in connection with Buscemi, but he doesn't vouch for Stormare. But also, like, his only kind of distinguishing scene is just to show up and beat the crap out of Steve Buscemi. And then he, like, he's like a whirlwind. He comes, he beats, he leaves. <laughs> Give him points for intimidation that your sole purpose is just to show up and beat up another character and then leave. <laughs> Yeah, he has such great presence anytime that he's on, and he isn't on much, but you yeah. remember him, and, uh, and and yeah, and for me actually, I'm gonna have to add Peter Stormare is Guy Grimsrud, who is just he's silent, he doesn't have a lot of lines, but my gosh, he does face acting, and true, he's basically being stoic for most of the time, 
but it's just so funny watching <laughs> the way that he reacts to things and just is done with these amateurs around him. It's great. It's great. So, uh, again, so many great parts here. So I was honestly a little surprised his character survived to the end, considering like he, all the crap he did to justify a demise and he actually he made it out alive yeah buscemi did it but he did (laughs) and he was worse than buscemi (laughs) yeah all right moving on to hidden gem kevin what is your hidden gem for this movie i love the scene where mr mora gets interviewed about uh, a funny little guy who's going crazy out there by the lake is interviewed in his driveway by the cops that kind of puts everything together that I could watch that scene uh, on loop for endless amounts of time. <laughs> JD. Uh, my hidden gem goes to the victim in the field, because when we were watching the credits, we noticed that the victim in the field, it wasn't a name. It was a symbol. And when we looked it up, apparently the victim in the field is in reference to when Peter, when Buscemi and Stormare accidentally killed a trooper, a couple in a like minivan drive by at that moment, bad timing. And so Stormare rushes off after them to get rid of the witnesses. And uh, one of them, the, the car ends up uh, crashing and one of the, the husband ends up running in the field and then Stormare just shoots him in the field. Um, so it's apparently played by the storyboard artist of the movie, but he's credited his crediting signature is not a name. It's the symbol that the artist formerly known as Prince uses on its side with a smiley face incorporated into it. <laughs> There's a Minnesota linkage there. Link like to Prince? Connection to Oh, yeah. Prince is from Minnesota. So there, there's some rumors that ah. that was a uh, shout out to Prince. Ah, OK. That's awesome. All right. Well, we've been given this cast all the kudos. But but if, Kevin, you were forced to recast one of them, who would you switch out? I will switch out the son, Jerry Lundegaard's son, uh, with a young Leo DiCaprio. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I, I would have liked to have seen, it would be cool if that was somebody that we could look back upon. He had this bit part in the movie Fargo all these years later. That would be pretty cool. Um, also, the person I feel worst for is him in the movie. Uh, he, he loses basically everybody in his life in the course of like a couple of days. <laughs> yeah, poor kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my recast would kind of be the opposite of Kevin's. I'd want to recast a victim in a field as actual prince. So get someone like super famous that's in like at the contemporary time in like this random bit part. <laughs> it's kind of like how um uh, Daniel Craig is a stormtrooper in Force Awakens. But obviously you don't know nice. it's him because he's in stormtrooper gear with the helm on and stuff. It's, it's, it's always good to have have little moments like that. For me, <laughs> this is nothing. If if there were anyone who could do the kidnappers differently, I'm not saying better, just differently. It would be hilarious to swap them out with the wet bandits from Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> let's just, let's just have the most inept sequence because I got so much vibes of that when they were coming into the house. These two criminals who one of them is just total brute force and the other one is maybe thinks that he's got something but really is totally inept and it just gave me a lot of vibes for that so let's get the wet bandits in here from from home alone um, what did you guys think of that kidnapping scene i'm curious comedy errors with violence <laughs> oh my gosh there's that moment when I think it's I, I, I think it's Gergrim's red looking in the window. Yeah, and like like yeah, she was just sitting on the couch like what the heck? Like, yeah. Uh, and then and then he's 
he's got a little bit of a cut, and he's like, I need... Unguent, yeah, I need unguent. Oh my gosh. I, I love his his priorities just immediately flip to from executing kidnapping to getting unguent, and he's just <laughs> rifling through the, the medicine cabinet. Like, it's, it's, it's a truly funny scene. You know what? He's just like everybody else. When you're rifling through a medical cabinet, that's exactly how you do it. You just run your hand behind all the different vials and <laughs> knock them all off until you eventually wind up with just the one that's left. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is such such a great scene. I was also um again I came into this fresh and I was like, oh, did the wife just die? Yeah, same. Like I felt like, oh, comedy of errors ended uh, up in death. And she gets knocked down the stairs, tangled in a shower curtain. Oh gosh. Uh yeah, so next up is best shot of the movie. Kevin, what is your favorite shot from this movie? My favorite shot of the movie. Um I really like some of the parking lot shots that are from way up high, like after Jerry's leaving the meeting with with Wade, his father-in-law. They just have this, like, I don't know how they shot it, but it just looks straight down at the parking lot. It looks like a, a painting. Um, I, I, that really sticks out to me as, like, a very just cool, unique shot that shows just how how barren things are. And, yeah. Um, so here's a how question. How basic things are. That was honestly my best shot pick, too. So we're on the same page on that. All <laughs> right. So as I'm watching those scenes, and, and JD pointed it out as we were going as well, just, like, how do you shoot a snowy parking lot like that. Do you have to fill it in with fake snow, get it perfectly level, and then shoot it? Yeah, like how do you do multiple takes? Yeah, yeah. You can't do multiple takes of this parking lot because all of your footsteps are totally recorded unless you are ready to go in with a whole pile of fresh snow. So probably some poor um, filming interns had to be... Oh, but apparently, apparently like, it was the warmest winter there in like a hundred <laughs> years or something. So they had to use a ton of fake snow. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, so I bet it was some poor interns go first job to like, okay, take done, reshovel the snow. <laughs> <laughs> this is my snow leveler. It's like leveling concrete, but <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, I will go differently here with with, uh, my favorite shot, which is actually the low angle shot that's used when Gare Grimsrud goes after the innocent bystanders who have seen him shoot the state trooper. And when he turns around and goes in a car chase, it's this amazing low angle shot in the snow with the headlights showing through and you just see the other car's taillights in the distance and it's so tense and so as an as an image so evocative of how alone they are in the dark and then the taillights swerve and vanish yeah and it's so so cool i just love that honestly the seeing the taillights in the dark remind me a little bit of like the mothman and there's a specific <laughs> shot in the film version of the mothman prophecies that like you think it's headlights coming towards you and it's like Vroom, mothman <laughs> glowing red eyes anything can happen in the dark in the country in fargo so uh hey, midwest prime cryptid territory exactly um all right well broadening out a little bit we get to favorite scene overall scene of the movie kevin so i was actually gonna say that scene you just described but you did a great job describing that uh that whole getting pulled over by the the state trooper you know not having the tags uh to that you know 
Peter Stormare just snapping into action after killing the state trooper and driving after that that scene is is awesome and it's really well done and uh it's it's cool to just like think about you know what those people in the in the, the innocent bystanders were like thinking that like caused them to speed off and and swerve you can just read everything that went through their minds um and it was also it's it's also like really a brutal scene like that's the first time you're like oh boy like things are unraveling quickly here these guys are super dangerous um and it's the one that <laughs> that i was mentioning earlier that kind of disturbed me as a child uh seeing um just these you know innocent people just get killed uh for just driving down the road it's it's tough um but i think again i think it's the best scene in the movie it is so intense yeah. it is so intense jd uh my best scene i'm probably gonna have to go with the wood chipper just because it's kind of a it was the one thing i knew about the movie before going into it so it's like the quintessential like uh, we played like when playing movie charades that was our <laughs> like hint for fargo was wood chipper so it's the thing the movie's known for and also it's just so, so kind of like casual like she kind of sneaks up on it and he's just casually shoving bits of buscemi into the wood chipper <laughs> and you just see like this foot sticking out it's just again black comedy dark humor like and he just kind of like slowly turns and is like oh crap <laughs> i've been found <laughs> he's just totally has no emotions about this whatsoever he just sees an idea and does it yep for me it's got to be the hilarious story between one police officer we haven't met and one random guy from brainerd that we haven't met <laughs> and they're just in the driveway and the guy tells this long meandering pointless story about a suspicious thing that he saw about a guy at a bar and he ends it finally and and it's all in this hilarious midwest accent <laughs> and the, the, oh geez oh geez <laughs> nice people nice people and and uh, get to the end and it's probably nothing yeah it's probably nothing that's fine and and they walk away and it's just wonderful i love that scene it's so good up next what is your favorite wardrobe or makeup moment from this movie Nothing in the wardrobe really, I think, sticks out too much. But I'll go with makeup moment. Buscemi's bleeding cheek. Just you can just feel how uncomfortable that is and painful the way he's just <laughs> basically holding his bloody cheek for you know twenty straight minutes uh, and kind of like it's groaning so kind through of, it. of his partner to put him out of his misery, misery <laughs> with that cheek. <laughs> JD, uh, I'm gonna go. With best wardrobe moment is the Long Johns again, because it's really rare you don't like in I guess more modern times to see long because we, we get pretty cold up here, but we don't get like Long John level code, <laughs> no cold. Which I say as I have a Kigurumi at home, which is basically an anime version of a Long John that I wear <laughs> on really cold nights. So maybe I'm not one to talk. It was just like again, like it adds to the awkward kind of fun Minnesota culture humor is the fact that you know you have this badass killer that. That's a wearing long johns of all things. Yeah, yeah. And casually disposing of a body in a wood chipper in long johns. They just look so innocuous. Yeah. Who wearing this clothing could be could be that at all? Yeah, it's loungewear. <laughs> I'm just gonna call out the moment when Jerry Lundegaard gets back after having found his dead father-in-law on the top of the parking garage, stashed him in his trunk, and he sits down and unties his shoes, and it's just like the scene of, oh my gosh, what do we even do next? The uh, as, as his son, the aspiring accordion player, is like, oh yeah, where's mom? Oh, she'll be right back. Oh my. 
All right. Well, up next is Change One Thing. So, JD, if you had to change one thing about this excellent movie, what would you change? Uh, Sorry, I kind of agree with the, with the overall group that I think Mike should be cut. But I felt that whole scene was kind of awkward and uncomfortable. And maybe because I am female, it was kind of awkward that he was really creeping oh, on yeah. her. And like, if it had like a like, if it helped like progress the plot more, I maybe would be, would have been okay with it. But it just like it seemed like a, such a non sequitur. I wouldn't necessarily like maybe not. One way I could see to amend it would be to swap out Mike with a character that had already been established in the film. So it's at least connected to someone we have seen before. Like whether it was like probably not one to guard himself because he was the prime suspect. Like obviously she wouldn't be meeting old call all old high school buddy that might be a suspect. But connected insular back into the story somehow. Uh if not that then I would say I really liked the supernatural element of the T V series and I was a little disappointed it wasn't quite present overtly in the original source movie so maybe just layer in something subtle like how they did in the very first season with billy bob thornton (laughs) is he a demon is he not who knows you can argue either way you just worry about those small towns and things that could be out there but kevin how about you what would you change yeah i'm i am really struggling here because i do think it's honestly a perfect movie uh and that's you know i don't say that lightly but I guess if I could change one thing, uh, I would be to make it a little bit longer and give me a little more, just give me a little more of this world. Um, it's, you know, I, I think there's ways you could add to this movie without adding in too much fluff. Two more kind of bit characters. I'd just like to see a little bit more of our norm. I'd like to see him and his mallard that that wins the uh, three cent stamp. Uh, and, and Stan Grossman, uh, who I just, for some reason, just really enjoy all the time he's on the screen screen and i feel like he influences a lot of some of the characters that actually come in the fargo series where you just have these sort of like businessmen that i don't know it's you could jd you could probably comment on that but i feel like stan grossman actually influences a lot of the tv series characters as well uh yeah because there's definitely a lot of like business shenanigans going on in the like white collar crime going Mm -hmm. on that's something too like the tv series explores the differences like there's blue collar crime intersecting with white collar crime and vice versa so well you know what kevin you've made me want to change my change one thing because i agree it would be hilarious to add one extra little scene here and one character that i don't think was sufficiently developed is the sun (laughs) so i think we need to have a talent show involving the sun's accordion playing (laughs) and involving and that could be where the painting subplot goes actually that they're all actually entering into a talent show instead of the stamp contest. <laughs> That's what I'm going to add here. You have it inter- and then, too, that would intersect the characters better, like have the different parties come into play. Exactly. Collide, or even just enter each other's orbit. Oh, yeah. I'm going with that. So, uh, yeah. All right. And in the end, what is your favorite quote from this movie? Oh, where, where do I even begin, right? There's, <laughs> there's, a mil- there's so many options here. Um, the one that just really, I think, comes at the right time, says a lot about a character, an important character, uh, and jumps out to me is, I'm not sure that I, I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. Um, let, me, let me read that again. I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lou. I like that quote a lot. I don't know why. 
I just it shows the way they talk. It shows that she's a good cop and Lou kind of isn't thinking things through. And uh, it's it's really early into meeting Marge. Uh, so that's my favorite quote of the movie. It is. It is great. J.D.? Uh, what I think my favorite quote is when Buscemi comes back and they talk about splitting the he's presenting as 80 grand and a car to Stormare. And so I was like, we split car. And it seems like, how do we split an effing car with a chainsaw? Like, it's just like, you know, like in comedy of errors with these characters. It's just a funny line. It's a valid point. How do you split a car? Like, yeah. It's the delivery, which. Phrase a little bit more clearly about what you mean. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. That's shout out, shout out to shout out to all the little funny looking kind of lines uh, funny looking <laughs> as well. Yeah. 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 He's just funny looking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm just going to go with all, all these adorable little isms, the, the small town isms. So I'm just going to go with the hilarious delivery that happens in so many places of, oh, geez. Oh, geez. I think what, what Buscemi, I'm looking at my notes. I think Buscemi, after Storm Eric's and like shoots the. He, he keeps on saying, Whoa, daddy. Whoa, daddy. Like, he just, that, he's in shock, and that's just what he's saying on repeat. Yeah. Wade, the father in law, actually, like, slow mo says, Oh, geez, as he gets shot by Steve Buscemi as well, as he goes down. <laughs> yeah. This is, a, this is a great movie. All right. Well, uh, Kevin, at this point, um, is there anything that you would like to plug before we wrap up here? Um, no, nothing to plug, I guess. Uh, real quick, have have, you, have either of you seen The English Patient? No. No, I have not. Okay, because The English Patient basically dominated the Oscars this year. Um, hmm. and, and Fargo kind of got the short end of the stick there. I think The English Patient won like nine Oscars. Um, so that's that's something that I'm going to check out next, because how can you how can you be that much better than Fargo? Is my question. <laughs> <laughs> the English, of course. <laughs> 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 it's a war of the accents and, <laughs> and jd thank you for joining for a first episode with us thank you for having me and is there anything that you would like to plug uh if you want to check out my creature themed artwork i make everything from terrariums and dioramas to tattoo designs to ethically sourced mythozoological specimens and all kinds of other original art pieces and i do hit conventions and shows but you can find my stuff online as painting dragon feathers across most social media, including TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, ArtStation, all that jazz. Awesome. And it really is spectacular. So definitely check that out. All right. Well, time to get down to the brass tacks here. Kevin, on a five-star scale in half-star increments, how would you rate Fargo? Five out of five. Shocking. <laughs> it is a great movie. Um, what for you makes it a five out of five and not just a sort of very good what makes it great for you um i feel like because every time i watch it i pick up on something i didn't see the time before um it has multiple sort of styles to it in terms of like being funny being scary being intense um being sad like it makes you feel a range of emotions uh it's a, a small cast where everybody you know carries a lot of weight and i guess um yeah, it's there. There's no fat on it. It's really tight. There's nothing I would change about it. I enjoy every scene in the movie. So I, I mean, you know, I don't want to be a guy that just like withholds perfect ratings. There are some movies out there that for certain people are perfect, and this is one for me. Yeah, absolutely. This is this is such a great movie that is really describing the environment that it's in, all the characters, and you just get this powerful impression of it. So agree 100% there, Kevin. JD, how do you rate this? Uh, I'm gonna go with. 
probably a four to a four and a half. Just because okay. it's a very good movie. Um, like I said, there's a couple parts I would have changed or tightened a bit. Um, and like I said, I felt like the TV show did a little bit of a better job of interconnecting everything. It wasn't just all happenstance and serendipity. Uh, I'm not going to fault the movie for not having the supernatural element that the TV <laughs> series has. But like I said, it's one of those, I will say, I will admit, it's probably a movie would I have picked it off the book, off the movie blockbuster shelf myself. Probably not, but now that I've been watching, like, no, I appreciate, like, no, this is a good movie. The right, the characters are good. The plotting is good. Setting itself as a character. So, yeah, like I said, it's good that that now I've been exposed to it. Yeah, and I'm I'm really debating here. Um, This is is an awesome movie. It's, like, not 100% in my wheelhouse exactly, but it's just so good at what it is that, you know what, I think I will give it, I, I will join you on the five out of five, Kevin, because, man, this movie is just so well made. Um, everything about it is just so, just so, and all the character motivations are, like, it is exactly the kind of story where if you just come in at the end and someone explains to you what happened in this movie, it's like totally wild. Oh man, we found there was a car full of dead kids. There was a state trooper that was, that was dead because there was, there, there's this guy we found in, in Jerry Lundegaard's trunk. There's a, you know, all these crazy things happen. There's a wife who was found dead in this cabin. A guy got thrown in a wood chipper. Oh my gosh. But this movie takes you through the one little thing led to another, led to another, led to another. And you believe every step of the way. And I just love that about this movie. So uh, this is, this is just a, a, a really fun movie for me. And ordinarily at this time, we do a selection of movies for next time. But in this case, our next movie is actually something a little bit special and different uh this is when we'll have our 2021 year-end countdown special where we make superlatives and rank the movies we covered here on retro movie roundtable all year long it will be spoiler free but a lot of fun this is one of the most fun shows of the year so please check it out next time uh thank you so much for coming kevin it's been great to have you on this was a blast thanks for having me all right and jd it's wonderful to get you roped in on this with us thank you for having me i love movies so i can jabber about them all day yeah we'll definitely have to have both of you on for a future episode so now to all of you out there thank you all the lords ladies and knights of the retro movie roundtable we invite you to reach out to us we want to hear from you subscribe rate and review us on itunes spotify stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts uh, those reviews and subscriptions really do help others find the show and give us a like on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at movie underscore retro or email us at retro movie roundtable at yahoo.com. Producing and providing this podcast is fun but not free. We invite you to support the show at our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash retro movie roundtable forward slash there. Any contribution is appreciated and will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening, be good to each other, and watch more movies. Oh, geez.